0: Hi, my name is Kunal, and welcome to the Geeks of the Valley podcast, which connects with some of the brightest minds globally who are leading their respective industries today to discuss the hottest upcoming industry trends and how their work is affecting the global economy. What started off as a coffee chat has now grown into a global platform for visionaries. This morning from Beijing, we have Ben Harburg, managing partner at MSA Capital, a global investment firm managing over $2 billion. With extensive experience in investment and operations across diverse regions, Ben is a leading figure in the industry. He's also involved in prestigious foundations and serves on various boards. Beyond his professional achievements, Ben is a co-owner of Cadiz Club de Football and La Liga, And today, we'll delve into Ben's journey, gaining valuable insights from his innovative perspectives. Ben, thank you so much for joining us today. And how are you over there in Beijing?
1: Pleasure to be with you. And thanks for having me. All all, all well here in Beijing.
0: Uh, Let's uh, jump into the first question here, shall we? Go ahead. Can you tell us about your background and how you first became interested in the field of investment and operations?
1: Sure. Uh, I come from more of an entrepreneurial background. So uh, I started my career as a consultant, as many do, um, at BCG, and I think I was at the time the only consultant who left uh, my cohort to uh, to become an entrepreneur. They kind of laughed me, uh, laughed at me as I was going out the door. Uh, it was not cool, like it is today, to leave your or you know to leave your consulting firm or kind of these really stable career paths and uh, and to walk into the unknown. And um, and so I did that, and I left. Uh, after two years as an analyst, to to start what what was a, a mining and commodities trading company uh, rooted in in Southeast Asia, uh, maybe today that would be the equivalent of you leaving your or McKinsey job to to start something in the crypto space. For maybe a year ago, uh, that would have been the case. Um, I uh, I so I started that business and through some various twists and turns and uh, and. Um, and trials and tribulations, it it grew to be one of the largest uh, physical commodity trading companies in Asia, uh, with some of the kind of leading imports of 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 energy products as well as uh, metal ores, and that we built out a full stack uh, product and platform there that included shipping derivatives, um, uh, downstream, um, you know, almost kind of to, the, to to kind of the to the power plant or to to the smelter mouth. Um, uh, value chain connectivity, and then upstream to the to the mines themselves across geographies as wide as Africa, South Asia, Southeast Asia, and uh, and even into Australia. Um, and then along the way, I was you know I started started kind of watching the rise of technology. I had a few friends that had gone to Silicon Valley right after at, after college, and I I was at college in an interesting time. Um, I was I was I went to a, a school in Boston in two thousand from two thousand two to two thousand. and that was the same time essentially Mark Zuckerberg was next door kind of getting his taste for technology and then ultimately leaving to head out west and so I had other friends that left and and, or or that joined you know were relatively early employees at at Facebook or uh, joined various teams at Apple that produced you know some of the key technologies that would would shape our lives in the coming years be it the iPhone team or the um, iPod team or something like that. So I was watching what they were doing. And so so along the way, I started taking some of my own capital and investing it in technology um, in startups, largely in the United States and some in Asia, uh, kind of as an angel, uh, and also obviously advised these firms to help them think about operations and, and other ways that I could add value. And then Along the way in the commodities trading space, I had set up four offices in in China, which was our biggest receiver market. And so I was going from Singapore to Beijing and Guangzhou and, and and Shanghai and all over other parts of China on on you know on a monthly basis. And I was seeing the rise of these companies that at the time were relatively still unknown by global standards. You know, uh, at that time, you know, we still knew of QQ. We didn't know about WeChat and Tencent was this cute little name, and no one knew. Or had a sense of the behemoth that it was, or would soon become. And um, and so, you know, I was starting to watch the rise of these companies, and it felt to me that there was this, this secular trend in China technology growth. Um, and so, ultimately, in in 2015, when an offer, offer presented itself, I I uh, sold out of my my business and put everything I had, and my personal <laughs> net worth, into um, into putting together a firm to invest in Chinese technology, and have been been all in on it uh, ever since.
0: Wow, what a background. And, and you know, you have significant experience in various regions of the world, including the Middle East, Asia, and Africa. How has this experience kind of influenced your approach to investing and working with companies in these areas, especially at MSA Capital?
1: We kind of work backwards. So, the, so our core focus has always been and will always be China. And that is the, the market that is the largest and it, you know, it's actually pretty hard to go from China to any other market, save for the United States, because when you look at a, you know, just about any market, including those in Europe, the scale of any one country is about the size of a city in China, or maybe maybe a province at best. Um, and um, and you know, China has this homogeneity of data sets, and everyone being on one communications platform and a couple key commerce platforms, and you know, we have ubiquitous mobile payment, we have ubiquitous, low-cost, hyper-efficient logistics and all the other things that that have enabled China to be a global leader in kind of all the key mobile metrics, be it mobile payment penetration, e-commerce penetration, et cetera. Um, but so we looked at it from the reverse, which was um, as we scan the world outside of China, and really, we started this exercise in 20, 2017, 2018. and of course, I had I had kind of started in other emerging markets, as you said, and migrated towards China. So I'd started my career in Europe, and then was in the Middle East, and and then the commodities time I was in Africa and South Asia, Southeast Asia. Um, so I I I was already a bit of an emerging market junkie, but uh, but as we scanned those markets and kind of thought about them within the context of China technology, it became very glaringly apparent to me and. 2018 that that China would shape the way that global emerging market consumers engaged with technology and that you know our mantra became that Chinese built-backed or inspired business models would be those that would shape um, and dominate Uh, the competitive markets and landscapes within the next wave of technology, uh, technology markets. And we were very careful to use this term that we use called um, emerging technology markets because many of these markets look very civilized on the surface. You know, they have beautiful gleaming malls and hotels and roads and infrastructure. But the the reality is that behind the scenes in the surface, a lot of their core metrics around those technology adoption, um, uh, you know, kind of KPIs or data points quite low so low single digit e-commerce penetration or low single digit mobile payment penetration and so even a market that's quite quite organized and, and advanced can actually be be lagging in technology adoption and so but but our thesis was that, that these this next wave of markets would would be better informed by the business models best practices um uh solved problems that, that came out of China more so than those from Silicon Valley and I, I'm sure it's no surprise to you but as you know you know, as you speak with an entrepreneur As entrepreneurs in in Southeast Asia, parts of South Asia, Middle East, Africa, uh, most of them, particularly if they're in a a business model that is mobile first, be it mobile first entertainment, mobile first fintech, mobile first e-commerce, mobile first um, uh, communications, uh, they will tell you, and mobility, they they, they will tell you that, that, that their North Star is probably something that came out of China, rather than something that came out of Silicon Valley. And that's because the consumers in these markets are engaging with technology and are in an evolutionary state of technology adoption, very reminiscent of what we um, encountered in China maybe eight, seven, eight years ago, maybe even a little bit longer, longer time duration. Um, and, and it's not a similar experience to, to those of us that grew up in mature markets and, and particularly in, in those like North America. And, and and you know, it's it's cliche, maybe at this point to say, but it's you know, this is what enables this this kind of. You know the, the fact that technology appeared on the scene so suddenly for many of these consumers at a time when they were still so basic in their behavior enabled them to leap rungs on the evolutionary ladder of technology adoption. This is why, you know, folks in China went from you know from wet markets directly to e-commerce, or went from mobile, you know, from cash directly to mobile payments, and 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 in a way that you know those of us in the West couldn't do because we went through so many intermediary steps and you know, checks and, and credit cards or big box retail malls and, and all the other. Sorts of things. And, and um, so we saw that same behavior playing out in Southeast Asia, South Asia, Middle East, Africa. And so we felt that if we understood China intimately as we do and have a very deep and wide portfolio in China that covers most of the sectoral leaders in China across the key technology verticals, that then we would have unique insights in how to invest in that next wave of markets. We kind of know what business models made sense which ones didn't make sense and should be steered away from because they never became profitable or never scaled or tried tried and tested in China and ultimately never worked. Maybe even Southeast Asia in its laboratory, which is obviously an adjustment on China or an iteration, also didn't work. And, and then more importantly, post-investment, we could add a lot of values. We give them a, a, a Chinese playbook, Chinese pre-built technology, connectivity to Chinese businesses. And so we then kind of went around the world looking for markets that fit that, that set and 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 kind of and fit that profile of, of being able to you know fit to that approach of investment and value creation and 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 maybe not so surprisingly that ends up being a lot of the world because it's not just these emerging markets or these emerging technology markets at this point it's the west right it's the west and it's it's markets like europe and the united states and, and canada and other parts of north north america and and, and um and 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 you know, today and you look at the app store in the United States and four of the five top apps are Chinese built. And you start to kind of get this picture that actually anyone who is mobile native um is probably more inclined to a bit Chinese built backdoor-inspired business model than something that came out of the West for again those mobile first um, um, products and so it, that that's what kind of drove drove us out into the world out of China and why we've built now a large global physical footprint across South Asia, Southeast Asia, Middle East, Africa, and even now into Latin America and the United States. That 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 drove us to those markets because we felt like we had unique insights because we we understood China so intimately.
0: So Ben, you mentioned uh, the Chinese playbook. Could you define that further? What do you mean by the Chinese playbook?
1: Sure. Um, so it's you know what we're referring to is kind of what business models and kind of the technology that enables them worked in China um, and 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 might be applicable to uh, an emerging market consumer. So a really simple example would be um, you know. The United States still today has been essentially unable to build uh, a super app, kind of one one single application that has a huge array of services unified within it, um, whereas China has built multiple of these. And maybe let me pick on one of our portfolio companies like Meituan. Um, and, and, and so in, in Meituan, what you have is a company that started as, you know, doing kind of food delivery and restaurant reviews, but ultimately now has expanded across this very wide array of value chain products and services, which include you know, hotel bookings, flight bookings, financial services, um, mobility solutions, um, uh, and, and, and all kinds of other different kind of e-services, like essentially an e-services super app today, all in one. Um, and uh, whereas in America, each one of those products is siloed, right? We've got, you know, open table for, for restaurant views and restaurant bookings. We've got DoorDash for food delivery, and we've got, you know, Uber for ride hailing. We've got um, you know different financial services applications for those for those products. We have Expedia for bookings, and no one has really been able to unify all of them. Um, and and so um, and 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 the beauty of that that Metawon model is and 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 you know I think people were skeptical of it. Even you know we we faced a lot of skeptical uh, limited partners who didn't believe that this was ever going to be a really big business or could become profitable. But the the genius of this model is that you onboard consumers through high frequency low margin transactions where you're losing money essentially saying food delivery but then you quickly migrate them to other services and products that are higher margin lower frequency right so you know when when you book a when you book a a, you know you're you're on a tourist in shanghai and you want to go to a beautiful temple you book that ticket on the meituan um it costs meteon almost nothing for that right it's 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 already in the application they don't you know do a huge amount of customer acquisition spend they don't have a whole team of people it's a, you know it's a, it's a virtual ticketing agency and so essentially this is a near pure profit transaction at least on a kind of a gross level for 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 Meituan. and so now that you're in their platform they're making money and they eventually they became profitable off the back of that exact model and so then if you, you extend that to a market like Southeast Asia and you look at Grab or Gojek who, while they've had their struggles post IPO are still hugely valuable companies and more valuable than any equivalent companies in any other emerging market doing, doing a similar model um, and have, you look at them and they have built essentially a replica and in some ways even more, more, more complex, but a replica of these super apps, these e-services super apps in China and so today. Those both of those companies are essentially banks. They're insurance issuers, but they are of course a, a platform of service products, from massages to home cleaning, and of course mobility and food delivery. Um, and um, and 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 so again, the 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 China playbook kind of instructs you on that, and the Chinese pre-built technology. There are all kinds of applications sitting on the shelf in China, collecting dust because they were part of this, you know, battle royale that started with hundreds of competitors in that space and ended with Meituan Dienpeng and maybe Ulema's, the last two kind of true material competitors standing in that in the, at least in the food delivery space. And so all of that is available and applicable to markets and, and entrepreneurs who are developing, whose competitive landscapes still offer opportunities for, for, for growth. And so that's what we talk about when we think about, you know, that, that playbook and problem solved because as, someone like Mayton was going through that experience of building out a huge platform, they faced all kinds of hurdles. And you know, again, there's now institutional memory and people that can share that we have in our team or in our kind of expert database that can share those solved problems, what they did, the workarounds they did to resolve those challenges that they faced, that they were encountering them. And so all of that is available today to the entrepreneurs that we invest in. And it's, you know, it's part of our kind of I think unique value that we provide to them as we kind of decode, demystify, and, and frankly, translate literally all of those different um, learnings into their local languages and into their local context.
0: And speaking of these, you know, Chinese tech giants, how has the rise of these technology giants such as Alibaba and Tencent impacted the venture landscape? And what opportunities and challenges does this present for startups and investors?
1: It's a great question, and it's it's an odd one because it's it's different than other markets, particularly the United States. So many of the the large technology giants in America obviously are not so active, particularly at the early stages of of the venture capital kind of value chain. Um, and even if they are a later stage, often they are more acquisitive than they are uh, minority investors. Um, and so, you know, uh, today, Facebook doesn't really have any kind of a strategic minority investments arm. Uh, a, a Apple is famous for never having any kind of a, an investment fund or arm. Um, Google, of course, has been active, but it's you know it's 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 obviously a, a different kind of a, a approach uh, and and more kind of maybe sectorally focused. Um, and uh, and and of course, you know, Microsoft and others are, are 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 much more like Apple in the fact that they are more. Typically, you know, very large investors or, or majority acquirers that they want to build, you know, and bring things into their ecosystem rather than just invest in them and leave them independent. That's very different than China, where you know, Tencent are one of the most active investors, and most of the best technology companies in China will probably see Tencent on their play bo- uh, on their cap table. Those that have achieved some of the highest valuations. Alibaba also been active, although they are they do skew a bit more towards acquisitions um, rather than, than a, as, as, as a higher volume of kind of minority investments. And Alibaba have been very active globally in, in, in acquiring also um, uh, e-commerce players, be it leaders in Pakistan, Turkey, uh, Indonesia, Southeast Asia, uh, et cetera, and as well as payment businesses that they've built or invested into or acquired in Latin America, South Asia, Southeast Asia. Um, and so these Chinese folks are Chinese corporates are not just active in China, they're hugely active globally um, and are good investors too, um, particularly in the case of Tencent. Um, so that creates challenges and opportunities. Uh, on, certainly, on the challenges side, I would say one of the biggest questions that you always have to ask yourself in China because these Chinese tech giants are so omnipresent is. Why couldn't they just build put us out of business? Why couldn't they just build this internally and put us out of out of business very quickly? You you have so many different sectors where it feels like there's a monopoly or a duopoly that that inhibits um, uh, new entrants. And so, for instance, we as a firm have not invested in in a financial technology company in China in the last six years uh, because uh, because the Chinese technology giants, particularly sense I, that have what is seemingly a duopoly, at least in kind of this technology space around around a lot of this financial services use cases and have, you know if you look at any of those diagrams of Ant Financial is just a behemoth when it comes to all the different products and services that they have under their hood. Um, so it, it makes it harder in many instances to invest or to build businesses in certain sectors um, alternatively, though, of course, we've we've also benefited as a firm from having those those guys in the ecosystem, and many of our portfolio companies have been beneficiaries of receiving significant capital from from Tencent uh, or Alibaba or ByteDance or Meituan um, or or others, Baidu. Um, uh, and 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 also we've we've had acquisitions. Alibaba has acquired a couple of our, one or two of our companies. Uh, Baidu the same. Um, and so it um, it provides us with a, a nice kind of capital base as well as a liquidity op- opportunity for for some of our businesses. But we just have to be very careful. It's it's kind of like being in the grass, you know, being stomped on by giants. We have to be very careful to stay in close contact with them, not not fall afoul of them, and ensure we're kind of operating within their same strategic imperatives and, um, and, um, you know, if, if possible, try to get into somewhere kind of a space that's somehow competitive between the two of them, where maybe you could find yourself in a privileged position of being in the middle of a bidding war or some kind of other form of competition, but, uh, but critical is to, to not, to not build or invest in anything that is, um, that could easily be, that is competitive with them or directly replicable by them, because that will usually end in you having a pretty, pretty short lifetime.
0: And, you know, just diving a bit further into this, right, when when it comes to these maybe monopolistic tech giants investing in a founder's uh, startup, uh, the founder has maybe two options if they don't take the investment. Either they be driven out of business by the tech giant or they be driven out of business by a competitor the tech giant invested in. And so... Mm-hmm what are you, what are your thoughts in regards to this? Is there an alternative option to this, or is the market that tight?
1: It's not always a winner take all market in China. Of course, um, there are there are certainly some sectors that see robust competition, um, but it's uh, it, it's hard. And I mean, I give you an example. We were investors in the ride hailing space in um, in Mobike, um, and Mobike was uh, you know was supported by um, Tencent. And um, so that created connectivity for them into the Tencent platform, and you know made it easier to integrate with with uh, WeChat play, Pay. And and it, you know um, uh, you know there, Mobike was one of the preloaded applications in the in the WeChat uh, mini mini app wallet uh, uh, without ever having to go and download it independently. And so you could just you know flip open your 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 QR code reader scan your bike and it kind of just took you directly into all the payments and um uh and registration without having to kind of go into that onboarding friction. Um and so that that's and, and and obviously one of you know one of our competitors was at the time backed by by Alibaba um and and you know and, and Meituan had others and ultimately you know Meituan actually acquired Mobike right as part of that you know going back to my previous point part of that onboarding um Onboarding engine for for their broader kind of higher profitability platforms So probably losing some money on the right hailing side or the micro mobility side, but making money and all the other services that that all those millions of daily users on the bikes, um, uh, then then migrate towards. Um, it's hard. Uh, you have to be very careful, um, you know, again, and ensure it's you know, we, we work very hard to, to make sure that we bring in Tencent and others to, you know, whoever's the most kind of applicable technology giant you want them on your cap table um and you know tencent particularly their investment portfolio is incredible right I mean Pinduoduo duo and neo and um you know uh, m- you know uh, all kinds of very valuable technology companies um, Meituan, um that JD, you know, on, on, and on that, 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 you know, you know, probably if you kind of, you know, as you've seen the certain process actually of selling some of these to kind of remind the world, I think how valuable all these holdings are and that as a sum of the parts, they might actually be uh, worth more than people think they are just given the value of all these stakes. So um, it's, it's, it's again, very tricky, but, but, and, and it's something that we don't kind of, I don't think had, you know, you face this dynamic anywhere else in the world and to some degree, it's because China has been relatively lax on the antitrust front and enabled these guys. And I, and I think there have been rumblings about um, some of these tech giants, you know, losing their freedom to invest so pr- prolifically in the technology space. I, there was an announcement last year, year before, in the, a year or so ago, that you know, ByteDance were essentially, you know, discontinuing their investment arm. Actually, they still have it, but everyone's kind of been reallocated to different departments. So um, I, I do think it's probably healthy for the ecosystem that some of that be managed and curbed and 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 allow more for kind of non-corporate funds to continue to do what they do best and help great companies rise without this uh, fear that, uh, you know, again, that someone in a monopoly or duopoly position can can wipe you out because that gives them huge negotiating power too. I mean, if if a Tencent comes to you and says that we're the only channel on which you can really market, because you need to be in our mini app in order to access all the you know billion plus users we have each day, then you really have to kind of give them any deal they want, and uh, and it makes for you know a challenging position for many entrepreneurs. So uh, I think that's being being to some degree more um, democratized, but 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 not as not as fast as other countries, obviously.
0: And, and speaking of of regulation, which you just alluded to right now, can you discuss the role of government policies and shaping the venture landscape in China and how they differ from other markets?
1: Sure, sure. It's one of the biggest misnomers, I think, when it comes to global understanding of China. There's this perception that China is this command and control market where every um, aspect is quick you know carefully managed and controlled and it, it essentially means that um you know you as an entrepreneur you are completely kind of at the at the whim and will of the government um you know, and, and there have been in the extreme, the for instance, these narratives recently that have been, you know, kind of really propagated in Western media that China government is at war with big technology. And that, you know, that as a result of of that dynamic, the future of China tech isn't so bright because entrepreneurs feel like they could be cracked down upon and are, are losing kind of uh, light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to being kind of free of government intervention. Generally, and there are exceptions to this, our feeling is quite the opposite on the ground. It's that actually, China for the last decade um, has thrived as a technology um, uh, as a technology market largely because the government was quite laissez-faire, and in many ways, it was more it was a more law of the jungle, unregulated market on the ground in China than in the West. Uh, the simple example would be again going back to one of our portfolio companies like Mobike, where If they got kind of one approval for their bikes in certain province, they were able to kind of use that reciprocally for other provinces and could, you know, the bikes, as you saw, appeared all over the country seemingly overnight and at massive scale, Um, as opposed to the United States, where someone like Bird, who who were kind of the Western equivalent of Mo Bikeman, who are now, you know, worth almost nothing today, um, because they weren't able to plug into a super app like 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 Mobike were and are just a standalone um, money losing proposition um, that they struggled and kind of had to go county by county, city by city, state by state in order to roll out their um, bikes or scooters across America. And the joke was that even I think in Venice, where their Venice Beach, California, where their headquarters was, they weren't approved for for the for the bikes, or in some intervals were not allowed to. Um, um, you know, you, you couldn't obviously get a scooter. I think a bird scooter for for many different periods in 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 San Francisco, supposedly, you know, so the tech capital of America. So, um, so that's just a micro kind of cosm of this. But the uh, the simple fact is that actually, if anything, Chinese regulators are now catching up with technology, and they have, you know, most of the actions that have been taken against technology over the last uh, year or so. They've really caught the eye of global investors. Were what I would call latent antitrust decisions or or regulation that is very much reciprocal of what we see in the West. Um, any any given day, you'll see in a flash in your your local business media about Meta or Google or Apple or someone else getting dinged with a you know hundreds, if not billions, of dollars of fines. From the european regulators and american regulators large on anti-monopolistic antitrust grounds um and this is the same thing that chinese are going after i mean they they you know as i as as we alluded to in the previous questions about the power and kind of the danger of these these technology monoliths in china uh, behemoths um you know they have amassed huge power and that power is not just you know it's it's not just as, as, as kind of cliche to say a threat to maybe kind of central government but more so it's a threat to consumers it's a threat to competition um you know it, it, consumers lose when monopolies rise right uh, a simple example would be you know one of the best times as the chinese technology consumer in recent history was probably during the kind of, i'd say 2015 to 2017 phase uh where People like Uber were still in the Chinese market and were competing head to head with a Chinese um, um, uh, domestic incumbent like 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 Didi. And because they were competing with each other, um, there was just a race for who could provide better products and services. Um, and literally, the day that you know the 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 Didi uh, acquisition or whatever they wanted to call it, merger of with Uber uh, was consummated, you know, as you know, Uber got um 20% of dd and has a board seat on DD and all these kinds of things but but agreed to essentially depart the market the day that happened ride weight you know kind of t- times for waiting for wait rides went up significantly so you had to wait longer to get a ride and um and uh prices of course went up and overall kind of quality of service went down and so um you know consumers lose when monopolies rise and and, and so The Chinese government, I think, is is very rationally trying to take action against a lot of these monopolies. Um, And so that that to me is a very rational endeavor, but it's the perception globally because we're used to a Chinese market that has almost no regulation. The perception is that this is something new and therefore is curbing growth or is somehow not um, not in line with our Western experience. Um, there are other forms of regulation in China which are which don't have Western precedent, of course. Um, one being this kind of what I'd call almost like kind of nanny state intervention, where the government feels that certain sectors, um, while technically legal, are again um, undermining kind of social harmony, social equilibrium, and where consumers themselves are often again the losers um, at the hands of, of of greed-driven kind of corporates. And so they've stepped in there again, in, in what they believe to be, I think, more of an altruistic intent to um, um, to protect consumers. So this started with things like um, uh, China banning the peer-to-peer lending space in China, which was a mess of predatory lenders preying on low-income individuals, offering hugely off-market interest rates, and you know, and essentially driving them to desperation and and. and through, uh, through, you know, kind of through loan sharking and other things, that industry was largely done away with, and I think to the betterment of of society. Um, uh, uh, gaming, again, another one that's been, you know, significantly intervened upon. Again, I, I don't know if you, if how many parents out there would wouldn't mind it if. Um, if if their local government didn't kind of put some kind of a guardrails and a time limit on their children's ability to play PUBG or other violent video games that are hyper addictive, um, that's what the Chinese government did. Again, they're not alone. We've seen India, we've seen other markets do similar things to um, to to reduce that kind of time wastage and and addiction on te- technology addiction amongst particularly young young consumers. Um, and then even into uh, sectors like online education, which um, you know sounds innocuous while sitting in the West, maybe, but when you came and looked at it on the ground in China, it was this kind of free for all of um, that put immense pressure on parents and students of constant bombardment with test prep uh, classes and 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 uh, platforms that again um, you know thrust a lot of parents into debt. There was this kind of peer pressure that you need to put your children in all these different test prep classes that put pressure on the kids. The parents went into debt to pay for these test preps. Um, the test preps were poorly run with teachers that weren't well um, uh, uh, credentialed um, uh, as a business model. Say nothing think for the kind of societal harm of the business model, these were also quite quite bad businesses, I think, quite quite kind of cash um, cash. Uh, dump business models that used a lot of, burned a lot of venture capital financing and um, to buy users, but who were not sustainable and were ultimately not, um, you know, didn't become profitable. Uh, it was overall just a very messy industry. And and again, not unlike the West where much of the education system is a non-for-profit, uh, you know, essentially most of our, you know, educational institutions in America are non-for-profits. Um, they, uh, they, they kind of push towards a similar trajectory for China. And, and, uh, and it's possible they kind of reopen that and find ways to regulate it. But uh, suffice to say, I think that's, that's the kind of one form of regulation that Westerners or foreign investors struggle to understand. But again, for someone sitting on the ground, boots on the ground in Beijing now for the last seven years, in my case, it doesn't feel that, that, that irrational.
0: When it comes to not being in line with our Western perspective, how have recent geopolitical tensions and trade disputes between China and other countries affected the venture capital landscape in China, and what potential implications could this have for the future
1: sure it's it's a very material effect. Um, you know I studied international relations when I was in university and actually harbored aspirations one day being a diplomat and um, didn't study business as many of my um, friends and, and co-conspirators do here. Um, and I, I thought maybe that would give me a disadvantage because it didn't come from kind of that uh, economic background. It turns out that knowing geopolitics understanding how the world works and understanding Washington, Beijing ends up being probably the most pertinent skill set uh, that we uh, that we need to employ in today's world. So I, I don't, there's a lot of things I can talk about. Maybe I'll just focus on two. One is the ramifications of decoupling on Chinese businesses. And the second would be more the kind of financial aspect of it all. Um, so, uh, you know, decoupling and this exercise of moving, separating the supply chains, value chains, capital flows, talent flows, public markets, capital markets, et cetera, um, has uh, as really had a material impact on on. Kind of reshaping the landscape in what countries and markets do business with China and where Chinese companies can hope to expand and where they can't. Um, and um, you know, one of the key kind of uh, outcomes from a lot of this decoupling is this—you know—what people maybe would cliche, what people term, um, uh, splinternet net uh, or balkanization of the technology world. And in 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 this kind of splinter net world, you have these parallel ecosystems of Chinese technology companies, be the hardware, software, and, and the markets where they can go, and and similar kind of uh, global, it, not unlike a global cold war, where you have different satellite states that are aligned with you know with the U.S. and Soviet Union in the old context, and now with China and the U.S. and in today's, um, and um, and 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 some a lot of this really is is coming from the West, in and, and particular the U.S. in the sense that they have come to a lot of markets and kind of force them to choose one or the other um but it's but it's accelerated by both sides now and 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 so you know some countries now you know there's a kind of this even even during the Trump administration time they used this term clean alliance, clean app store, clean fiber optic cable clean 5g networks um and it really was this kind of you know these are the countries and markets that have clean or western built Western approved 5g networks and these are the markets that, are working with Huawei or other Chinese hardware providers and, and maybe similar things on the software side of things. Um, and um, and again, I think that consumers lose in this battle um, uh, because they're, you know, they're gonna be kind of to some degree in, in a more monopolized environment where you can't have kind of free market competition maybe between Chinese and, and American technology providers, but, but also the countries lose and particularly I think the US loses because um, China has done an incredible job of accessing that next wave of emerging consumers, as I mentioned on the offset. And if one day America really does choose to pull its operating systems from Chinese hardware and its app store out of Chinese phones and, and all those, those, uh, you know, that connectivity to Western-built applications or non-Chinese-built applications and, and products, um, that would mean that those consumers in those markets lose access to, in many instances, the American or the Western-built products. and. So that means a deep decline in revenue for, for, the, for the Americans and many of those markets that are, are really that next alpha wave um, that, that, will, um, j- that will really you know, kind of drive a lot, a lot of the kind of true growth for these businesses over the coming years. Um, and, uh, and instead, they'll be left with operating systems built by Chinese firms and, and app stores that connect you to Chinese-built applications. Um, and so it's, it's it's to some degree to America's detriment to to withdraw from these markets or these operating systems or or this hardware and or force countries to choose. Uh, and I I think you know consumers and companies are better when there's competition. Um, and it keeps uh, it keeps uh, you know kind of again consumers protected. It helps you know kind of this concept of iron sharpens iron. It helps keep um, everyone honest and also keeps everyone pushing towards higher degrees of innovation because they have to kind of compete openly. So um, decoupling is starting to kind of draw a new map of the world along those lines, which is something you have to bake in when you think about the growth potential for certain Chinese for American technology, as well as um, the type of um, you know capital and talent and, and other kind of key inputs that, that technology will have access to. And that kind of goes to my second point, which is, you know that there is a very material wave of of decoupling actions being taken largely from the West today again, and these have a really significant impact on the Chinese technology landscape. So the first were the kind of withdrawals of hardware, um, be it chips, um, software, and machinery that were driving and the the you know development of some of the Chinese um, uh, core technology companies, chip companies, AI application businesses. Um, so the loss of both that hardware um, and software is material, and it, it means that it'll slow down some of the kind of growth trajectory, at least in the short term, for these Chinese businesses. Um, and we have companies in our portfolio that, that will see a, an effect from that. Um, the other one is obviously even more material to my, my mind, which is the capital side of things. Um, you you know you, we've been talking about it, and I've been warning our investors for 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 almost a year now. It's on the way, but there you know there will be a coming capital ban announced. Imminently from the U.S. side about certain sectors um, in China where they will restrict flow of U.S. domiciled investor capital into those sectors, um, and um, and and so that will mean less capital available for Chinese startups as they look to build. And there's a broader kind of halo effect of that, which is today, given again all the kind of constant geopolitical narrative and and, and noise in Washington, and of course you know the challenging kind of conditions that China has uh, presented the world with over the last few years, round zero COVID and, and some of the things that can store domestically, the um, actions taken domestically, um, that many Western investors, at least today, are shying away from the Chinese market when it comes to invest, investing in funds or direct investments into companies. And so that means that there is materially less available capital today than there was a few years ago for the Chinese market. Um, And so that means that companies have to be more cash conscious. They have to be more thoughtful about from who they raise and making sure these are companies or these are funds that have, you know, kind of strong and long term capital partners. Um, They have to find other alternative domestic sources of capital, R&B funding, state state funds. Uh, And of course, there's a lot of Chinese government regulatory support around these sectors today, um, but they need to find a way to access that. Um, And so it, it just really kind of has reshaped the capital landscape in China. Um, in ways that I think are ultimately detrimental to Chinese um, entrepreneurs and growth because there isn't just as much capital available today as there was historically uh, or the growth rates aren't where we thought they would be today. Um, and so that that has that has a, a overall ecosystem effect and, and means companies have to be a lot more um, strong on fundamentals and you know that's why I think it's unlikely we see a lot of you know next generation of bike dances or pinduo or any of the kind of you know, hundred billion dollar plus type companies that came out of the last cycle of technology kind of innovation in China because those required really significant resources to be built. And um and there's just a lot less money today to available to founders that are using money to buy market share or to you know spend on customer acquisition. Um, and, and so you know we as a firm have always stuck to companies and entrepreneurs that we felt had significant um Technological moats around their business and and were very defensible and um, didn't burn to burn to kind of gain market share and 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 lo and behold that ends up being probably the one the ones that will survive this current challenging period while uh, while capital is constrained but it's it's a material impact on the venture ecosystem.
0: And Ben, I know we touched on this in the conversation previously in, in pockets. But can you speak to the unique characteristics of Chinese venture capital firms and how they differ from those in other markets, particularly in terms of investment strategies and portfolio management?
1: It's a good question. And I, you know, I've only, I'm a weird weird bird in the sense that I'm American, but I've never worked in America. Um, And so, and I do, you know, I spend a lot of time with venture capitalists in the U.S., um, but I've never been a practicing venture capitalist myself in the United States, although we've made certainly some investments in the U.S. Um, it's it's a different market, uh, but not wholly different. I mean, it, it, it feels to me a bit more cutthroat, a more, bit more dog-eat-dog. Uh, again, going back to that law of the jungle analogy I used previously, it really does feel like that competitive fire and intensity in China that we faced was that it was it was to a degree more more intense than i'd seen anywhere else in the world um in the competition for deals and the types of things we saw VCs doing and investors doing to kind of see if they could ward people off of companies or out of rounds um but from a uh so that's just kind of behaviorally but i mean from a sec- sectoral perspective there there are quite different some large differences between China and the U.S. today. So again, fintech in America remains a pretty interesting sector to invest. Essentially, nothing of that sort really available in China today. SaaS has been a sector that has been rumored to be in, uh, you know, kind of quite quite hot in in you know, or sorry, SaaS is a sector that is is quite robust in in the U.S. But it's and it's it's always been kind of on the cusp in China. There's always been this rumor that it'll be the next big thing. Um, and, and people pitch around it and talk to it, but there's still relatively few fast companies being built in China today that are what we we're accustomed to in the US, the Cisco's and SAPs and Oracles of equivalents or Salesforce equivalents, um, and, and for various reasons. And so, you know, where China is today, because a lot of that consumer opportunity feels pretty well saturated. And again, while in America you're still seeing investments in the consumer space. Where people think they can still build new social networks or new e-commerce platforms or creator kind of platforms that, you know, that provide plat, you know, tools or or communication channels for this next generation of content creators who are really kind of supplanting traditional advertising or other, you know, marketing channels. Again, a lot of that feels very well covered and saturated in China because of the domestic incumbents in those spaces, kindle duos, alibabas, bite dances, 10 cents. <laughs> and so um, what that means is in China today, there, you know, the, the sectors in which we can invest are are maybe a little bit more constrained. And it's more in the spaces that I think China significantly lags the West. Um, um, and and so those that's kind of biotechnology and life sciences. Um, where China has historically struggled to build uh, domestic businesses that have global applicability and can kind of reach those tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars in valuation, very few of those in China today, um, and, uh, and likewise in the core technology space, again, where China historically was more dependent on U.S. inputs, and so You know, the likes of Xiaomi could build a really beautiful front end and an ecosystem behind it of products and services, again, a super app of of sorts that had a hardware kind of onboarding ramp, but they didn't do the hard part, which was the core technology. They kind of relied on Western built operating system, Western built chips and even app stores, of course. and today, given the geopolitical context, they're having to you know kind of be more self-reliant in those spaces. And so that's generated a whole new set of interesting core technology opportunities, again, ranging from chips and quantum computing to AI applications to space tech um, to aerospace and any anything kind of that you know now China's gonna have to develop on its own and where you know investment into Western equivalents is is probably has been restricted for for several years now. Um, so those are the, those are probably the spaces that I think, you know, are, are the most active today. And then, of course, so the consumer space, we still invest as a firm into companies that we think have a very high technical moat, uh, or are part of this kind of China to the world narrative. So kind of that long tail that fits behind Xi'an and TikTok and others that are, that are you know, Chinese companies that follow that, that formula of using a Chinese business model to, to address global consumers.
0: And and coming from this global consumer perspective, how are Chinese startups and investors adapting to the changing global landscape and increasing competition from other markets, uh, particularly in areas such as blockchain and AI?
1: Um, So, you know, Chinese firms historically weren't that global um, in the venture space. We're, We're probably one of the most global kind of you know, firms that had a presence both in China as well as in other markets, um, uh, and and we're one of the you know probably the most global in the sense of one that's kind of was started in China but then expanded out outward. Um, uh, um, and so, so they, I don't think that Chinese funds have too much, you know, because and capital has been constrained since that the Chinese balked a lot of these outbound investments. Back in twenty, you know, seventeen, and and thereafter, the Americans also blocked a lot of Chinese investments into the West through CFIUS and other, other programs. And so the Chinese have been in a bit of a walled garden ever since. The, obviously, they yeah. were also essentially kicked out of India, and so so there were very few markets for them to invest in outside of China. And again, there was always this kind of attitude that China was um, such a large market that you didn't need to look beyond its borders too much. Um, I think some of that is changing, um, but I would say generally that Chinese VCs are more myopic than their Western competitors who are investing, you know, in, in Latin America and maybe in, in Africa and, and, and Asia and, and, and elsewhere, um, where the Chinese are much more home home bias focused. Um, and, and beyond that, you know, I think in, in the verticals that you mentioned, crypto is an interesting one um, obviously, I think you know, China had a pretty unique lead in the space, and a lot of the kind of key engineering talent and founders that are now shaping the crypto world globally started in China. But because of a decision taken by the so so China had kind of a head start, I think, to some degree, but because of these decisions taken from you know Chinese regulators around the industry, most of those folks either just continued their efforts or you know left the country and are now living in Southeast Asia, the Middle East, North America, Japan, or else elsewhere. Um, and um, and so there's still some connectivity, and we've certainly seen a few Chinese funds that invest in both Chinese entrepreneurs building the crypto space that are based elsewhere, and, and that obviously then led them and opened doors to other crypto um, products built by other entrepreneurs from from those home markets. Um, uh, but overall, it's a space that you know we've seen, I think, less activity and maybe less success than again many of the Western counterparts, just because of that. Um, that divide and that also, again, all of this happening within the COVID context. So there was a physical divide that stopped a lot of these Chinese firms from being able to see and work with those companies um, overseas. There's certainly a huge amount of exuberance for the space in China. Um, and I think, you know, with the door opening, you'll see more there, but obviously now that sector is in, in a bit of a downturn. And so, um, again, the question will be if it's the right place for these PC funds to put the precious dollars or, or another kind of more more stable business models that kind of fill those market gaps I mentioned back in China. Um, and then um, and, and then in the, you know, the AI space, um, again, I think, you know, there's this huge craze underway in the West and, you know, we're seeing still kind of, you know, off-market valuations being achieved even while we're, in, you know, we're in kind of a recession of, of of all sorts in the West. And we're seeing similar things in kind of a parallel universe in China similar kind of valuations similar exuberance some of it irrational in the space so one needs to be very careful today to kind of think about who to work with and where to enter and whether to sit back and wait for some more proof in the pudding before jumping in but uh, but suffice to say China is having its own you know AI chat GDP craze, um, and how that filters into all kinds of different um, commercial applications. Um, but again, in kind of a walled garden parallel universe, rather than a lot of you know Chinese capital flowing into Western companies um, doing these models.
0: And Ben, to wrap up our call with our last question uh, for the day. As a co-owner of a football team in Spain's top division, can you share with us how your passion for the sport has impacted your career and personal life
1: well it's it's really easy. I mean i i um i I, I bought into this team uh, a few years ago with the thesis that you know we had already tapped out uh, our 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 kind of regional market when it came to sponsors and and um you know kind of revenue penetration, and that the best way for um for us to increase our revenue and therefore you know and in revenue is everything for us in these teams it's our you know money buys players players help us stabilize our position in the league and hope ultimately grow um and 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 play for you know the ability to compete in um, european competitions and you know and other, other kind of lucrative um uh, uh tv kind of right products um the the, the way I, I determined that we would do that amongst other initiatives, but the one that I could add the most value to to your question about my own background is um, through globalizing the team. And so I set on a mission to to bring this team to the world in a way that very few others had done to date within our league. You've seen some of these initiatives that have come on since then, like Welcome to Wrexum and, and some of these other ones. Ones where 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 you know a a celebrity was able to kind of introduce an unknown team or relatively unknown team to to global audiences, um, we did so without the benefit of celebrity, but we did so in a very methodic and systematic way, and that was, in many ways, actually to mirror the global footprint that I have in my investment portfolio to use that to um, uh, to enable us to um, plug into partners. Um, uh, in, in in all the markets in which I operate, and so for instance, uh, you know the the typical progression for us would be to form brother club partnerships with maybe the top team in, in each geography in which we operate, um, and then off the back of that, that you know we would build a social media team, building localized content for that geography in the local language and the local style, local memes, um, and so enable us to kind of introduce our product and team to a whole new set of fans um and then ultimately to speak kind of club tours so bringing our team to southeast asia to play against all of our partners in southeast asia or the middle east play our middle eastern partners or china to play our chinese partners and then of course off the back of that generate new content partnerships and relationships so shows or um you know their sponsored par- products as well as just general kind of traditional sponsors that would show up in our jersey or our stadium and so it's been really fun because it enables me to kind of without too much effort and going too far beyond what I'm doing day to day to kind of bring it along with me. And it provides a nice kind of, um, point of, uh, of conversation and something that we can, you know, plug our existing partners and friends into as well. And we've even had, you know, some of the technology companies in our ecosystem become sponsors to the team. Um, but it, you know, we've, and we've done it, you know, leveraging what we've, you know, really understand on the technology side, which are the, you know, unique aspects of, of global social media. And I've built these, as I mentioned, localized social media teams around the world. So it kind of enables me to fuse my day-to-day uh, work in technology and investing across multiple geographies with this, what is a, a childhood passion for, for this sport that is, you know, unequivocally the most, you know, the most watched, most important sport to, to fans across the world and so it offers a great kind of place a point of c- connectivity as as we go to new markets and um, and and it also you know just just uh, you know provides a nice synergy so uh, globalizing that team has been one of my great joys and it's uh, and it's every week uh, one of my pains and joys to watch our games and 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 and, and, and watch our all of our hard work uh, put on the line and hopefully continue to pay off as we grow the the strategy going forward
0: and Ben, for people out there who are interested in catching a cup of coffee with you or pitching their startup idea, uh, what would be the best point of contact? Uh, just go
1: to my website, which is Um, We have uh, we have all of those m- 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 components. You just made all those different you know, pitch section. We have a communication section. So anyone who wants to reach out, please feel free to. And, uh, and uh, if there's something we might be able to work on together, we'll get back to you.
0: Ben, it was a pleasure having you on Geeks of the Valley, and thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.